I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. And if this is your first time hearing our show, good news. It's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped us become who we are today and inspired us. And every educator we have on this show, whether a teacher, a coach, a professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. We want you to be a part of this show with us. So please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with your nominations and with your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And it is time for one of my favorite episodes of the year. It is our annual Top Education Issues of the Year episode, where we go into detail about some of the most important topics and conversations in education that you should be paying attention to. This year, we're lucky enough to be joined by Jason Klein. Jason is the Senior Director of Learning Partnerships at Northern Illinois University. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, you may remember Jason. And he's held so many roles across education during his career that I thought he would be perfect to lend that insight to this episode. And he's been a classroom teacher, a school technology leader, a principal, an assistant superintendent, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a few other ones too. Now he works with state agencies, advocacy groups, and so many others to help schools collaborate and find solutions across Illinois. So without any further ado, How about we just jump right into the top education issues you should be paying attention to in 2024. You know, this is actually, this is the the fifth year that we've done a version of this, starting with January 2020, which as you could probably guess, most of the takes and things that we had on that episode were kind of lit on fire within like a month and a half of that episode. So I think it's kind of impossible for us to give as cold a take knock on wood as I did there. But hopefully we'll have just some nice, you know, we won't say these are the biggest or the most important qualifiers on them like that. And we won't put these as like in any order of like one through 10, but just want to give people a good idea of some education issues that they should be paying attention to in in the next year and beyond, obviously. But the one that I wanted to start with and that we both had on our list independently was about early childhood education, early childhood services. I've felt like personally the last year for me has, I have moved from just being a like thinking about education as a K through 12 and then higher ed thing to incorporating early childhood and being like a childhood reporter on top of that too. And I think that we can kind of put this topic under two things, right? It's it's state investment and it's state consolidation. So, you know, obviously in the last year, there's been a lot of there's Smart Start Illinois is this big state investment that the governor announced last year that includes hundreds of millions of dollars for early childhood programs. That's facilities, that's funding increases for early intervention services for little kids with disabilities that need uh, occupational therapy or speech therapy. And then again, all types of investment. But then another big part of this, Jason, is just we have this system that obviously needs more money and resources, but we also need it to be way less complicated than it already is. So uh, let's start with a, a couple of things. 
Number one, yeah, we're kicking off here with with one of Governor Pritzker's key policy initiatives when it comes to education. Really, the other key policy initiative, which is the move from education into the workforce, but we've got that, you know, the preview later on too. But like, those are the are two big things. Governor Pritzker's been really consistent on those um, since taking office, and just uh, this week, as we're recording this in the middle of January. Uh, Governor Pritzker did announce uh, very proudly, as you can imagine, um, increases in the number of early childhood seats, an increase in, I think it was 800 seats. I don't have the data right in front of me, um, but significant growth and and yet still scratching the surface. So that is, is very exciting. We know that the impact of um, early childhood and preschool education, it, it's got an outgrowth, outsized impact, excuse me, on student growth throughout the rest of kids' uh, childhoods and educational careers. And so it's really money well spent from a policy perspective or an educational perspective. Um, in, in terms of the complexity, oh, you have understated that significantly. I, you know, I, I talked to a bunch of people about this last year, and I think the quote that I found that best summarizes it, it was someone who works with ICAM, who is they're the, like the state database for early yep. child care programs. Yep. And the quote they gave is just, I'll say it's a hot mess. So, I mean, really the topic, first of all, overlaps everything from what one might call childcare to what one might call preschool. Yeah. Um, it overlaps every kind of setting from someone's living room to a school district. And, um, and then of course in Illinois, like anything education related in Illinois, it's compounded by the complexity of our state and our, our wide range of communities and uh, and issues of access and you know in some places that has to do with just geography with distance from places and other places it's because there's just not enough resources for the number of people who live there um and so i i think first of all there's some progress being made i think number one if i look today versus at the beginning of my career uh a number of decades ago at this point um far more school districts have far more early childhood programming yeah and so right there, that actually, on the one hand, it makes things more complex because within a school district, that could literally be three different programs mm -hmm. going on that are all part of early childhood education in that school district. But nevertheless, for families, it's a little more concrete. Like if I know I can go to the school district office or to the elementary school and say, where do we find out about early childhood education? And someone can help me out that I think that's helpful, and I think that simplifies things a little bit. Um, certainly, the governor has tried to simplify things with the consolidation into a state agency. Mm -hmm. um, he certainly has someone who is leading that, who is an expert in educational policy in Illinois. Ann Whalen has been a very important uh, member of the Advanced Illinois team and um, very knowledgeable person. It will it will be very interesting to see how far this consolidation goes in simplifying things. Right. I, I wouldn't so I for sure wouldn't use that as our metric come December if we were to or next January if we were to follow up and say 
did it simplify things? Because that's not a one-year that's not a one-year job. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Um, but the second thing I think the bigger question to me is: Are we getting more and more kids into programs? How are we doing that in different locations around the state? How are we doing that for kids with different needs? I think those are going to be the kinds of metrics that are going to be where we really want to start watching. And I suspect, I mean, obviously the governor's announcement this week, um, I, we're off to a good start already, but I suspect three years from now, maybe I hope, but I also suspect, I know I hope, I also suspect we'll see those numbers continue to climb. And I think the deeper we dive into that data, hopefully the more we will see those numbers climb in places that maybe have been less well served by early childhood, again, for whatever those reasons are, the range of reasons that exist. Right. And it's always interesting to talk to people because we have these baseline statistics of how we measure things. And, and in early childhood, a lot of people talk about this idea of, of slots and slot gaps, meaning we have X amount of kids who need to be in daycare or preschool, and we have X number of slots. So, you know, you could say we have 500 kids who are of preschool age, we have 100 slots, therefore our slot gap is 400, but <coughs> everything is way more complicated than that. And that's something that people have really drilled home to me in the last year is just because something is, you know, we have a slot doesn't mean that that is ultimately meeting a family's need, which again gets into this idea of a full day versus half day, all of that. And then also just like, do we have daycare and preschool that's within a reasonable driving distance for families? Do we have a, that is at a time when the family's not working, where, you know, you might have it during the day, but if a, f a parent works nights, it's a little bit more difficult to find that. So there's all of these other things to consider, and I think it's important to, to drill down where there is no one good metric or statistic to measure any of this stuff. And I, I think one of the things I'll add on the, that's very specific to early childhood education is we cannot understate the size of the challenge that is communication with families around early childhood. So think about these couple of scenarios. So scenario one, we have just had our oldest child and we did not go to school in Illinois. We do speak English. We did. We went to college even maybe. We don't know our neighbors who have school-age kids. Where, what do I find out about and where do I find out about it? Now, scenario two, I've moved to the United States with a four-year-old and a two-year-old. We don't speak English. We know nothing about what the school system looks like. How do I find out about what's available to me? So that, that communication challenge, that's the recruitment identification challenge, and then to with your slots, not all slots are created equal, right? Because some slots are for certain kinds of kids with certain needs. Yeah. So we have to identify them. And I will say program funding sources put a lot on those running the programs to do that outreach. Yeah. This has gotten much harder as the media landscape has changed over the last 25 years as well. You know, we don't live in communities where everybody's watching the same three or four TV stations at night. 
And so even if we could afford a commercial, who's going to see that commercial? My 98-year-old grandmother yeah. is who's going to see that commercial. That's not going to help get, you know, her great-great-grandchildren into school. So um, so I, these challenges, again, with communication and outreach, I just want to stress, this is another piece. Of, now there's people working on it. There are, oh, my gosh, what people are doing locally throughout the state on this Talk about some of your true heroes in education are the people who are making those connections, connecting with families, bringing them into programs. Um, and there's people working on it at a policy level, but there's just a lot of work to be done. It is very challenging. Yeah. And that second scenario that you described of someone moving to the United States, we had that, I interviewed someone who had that exact same situation, that they moved to DeKalb, Illinois, from West Africa, knew nobody, had a one and two year old child who they discovered had some developmental delays, needed some OT, needed some speech therapy. And luckily it was, you know, they moved here from West Africa. So they're freezing cold in the winter. They're like, I need someone to walk around this child, go to the DeKalb Public Library, stumble onto a flyer for early intervention services, boom, connection. And it, and it worked for them. Yeah. And again, there's lots of families that um, don't know libraries. Or thing. I mean, literally, yeah. like, all kidding aside, because of, again, what their experiences are or have been communities they've lived in, places they've lived. Um, and so the outreach challenge, it's it's a huge challenge. Um, it's a really big part of this whole early childhood uh, component. And it's something that we will need to keep working on. And so, again, I think when the governor can give us news like we all got this week about, hey, 800 additional um kids were in early childhood programs because of this funding that's that's those initial steps in the right direction and hopefully five seven ten years from now from a policy perspective we're in a very different place the next one that we had on the list was educator supply and demand and over the past five years of doing this show we've multiple times had a version of this as a big issue in Illinois. Obviously, pandemic doesn't make any of that any easier over the last couple years. It's something that I've been thinking about over the past few months a lot, especially from the perspective of paraprofessionals and special education teachers and school psychologists, that type of support staff. But obviously, it's all over all over the place, depending you know what you're talking about with science teachers for high school. Like, I'm curious from your perspective, Jason. I know that over the past couple of years, there's been state investment. There's been different programs. I know that a lot of different school districts are really trying to invest in things like grow your own programs to to get more special education teachers, training paraprofessionals to become special education teachers. But I know that fundamentally we are in a place where, you know, years and years ago, for all sorts of positions, you guys would have a huge pool of folks that you'd be able to interview and then choose the best. And we're in a place, especially again, when we're talking about special education, paraprofessionals, those more difficult to fill positions, especially if you're in a district that serves a lot of low income students or students that don't speak English. A lot of times those districts are now having to you know, do their own marketing, go to job fairs, go to universities. And instead of waiting for all those candidates to come to them, they've got to find those candidates and find people that that work for their district. 
where do you see kind of the supply and demand at now as compared to where it's been over the past couple of years? So I think um, the work that the Association of Regional Superintendents in the state has done on this has probably been really, really critical because it, it does show how this has gotten worse. But I can also tell you in, um, in more qualitative or more storytelling terms. So in Illinois, historically, and this has gotten much better over the past six or seven years with evidence-based funding, uh, and there's still ways to go. But obviously, we have these huge discrepancies in resources that were available to school districts locally. And there were some groups of school districts, um, not entirely in, in, in the suburbs of Chicago, and certainly not all of the suburban districts by any stretch of the right. imagination, but in some pockets who were very well resourced, paid teachers very high salaries, and frankly, the teacher shortage was not a thing for them. Mm-hmm. The teacher shortage is a thing in those districts now. Um, certainly special education, certainly bilingual education, certainly bilingual special education is, you know, bilingual education is one thing. Special education is another thing. You also have bilingual special education certificates. Um, so I can deliver special education services in Spanish, in Russian, in Polish, whatever the case is. And anyhow, um, so yes, the the needs have grown. We have needs in other areas. Early childhood, huge area of need career and technical education, uh, math and science to, to a significant degree still. And so that's no one's immune from this anymore. So in terms of supply and demand, one of the big things, there is a ton of effort being devoted to the pipeline as you described, starting as early as high school. Uh, one of the things our team spends a lot of time and energy on is the college and career pathway endorsements, supporting school districts with implementing those we met with over 120 people this morning from literally one end of the state to the other in our regularly monthly meetings around that. Um, That pipeline continues through the community. Colleges have gotten very active on this, both in partnering with the school districts and uh, with the four-year universities to be part of that solution. And certainly like for us at NIU, and, and we're not alone in this, but really creating some innovative programs like our lead program, paraprofessionals, straight to special ed licensure, while they're working. So they don't have to go six months of student teaching without a salary. But where we also focus some energy because it's where the supply and demand issue was was not gonna fix itself if someone didn't do something about it. Through our Illinois P20 network, we launched this past year on an initiative called Keep Illinois, Keeping Educators Engaged Professionally. It's a grassroots effort our next meeting is like the Monday after we record this. God, we love acronyms uh, we have, more than anything in education. Yeah, we do love acronyms. <laughs> We've got a catchy little nice visual for it too. Um, but it's part of the Illinois P20 network. And we essentially just put the call out and said, hey, educators across the state, who wants to work not only on educator retention, but we want to go even further than that. We want to make sure we're putting in place policies and practices that help educators grow and flourish throughout their careers. Because we have to stop the exodus of people from the profession. Because again, that is something that even those resource-rich districts in Illinois are no longer immune to anymore. That is is the biggest post-COVID change. And so 
the pipeline work that's being done is awesome and it's diversifying our profession. And again, education and healthcare are the two professions where we know the more diverse the workforce is, the better the outcomes for all of us, including people who look like you and me, Peter. Um, you know, where we get better outcomes if we're served by more diverse teachers, more diverse healthcare professionals. Um, so that's awesome for the pipeline side, but we gotta we gotta help on the retention side too. And so we're working on that. It's really exciting because there's been such great attention to it from all parts, from principals, from teachers, uh, from superintendents, uh, from from those kind of support positions. Um, we've got school psychologists and counselors involved in the effort, for example, because um, it's about all educators. We're not even just focusing on teachers with that. So I think that's, I think we have to keep doing what we're doing on the supply side with the pipeline. Um, and those programs are expanding. Our, our number of students earning endorsements, high school students in human and public services, that keeps growing by leaps and bounds since ISBE first launched that in 2019, 2020. And, and frankly, uh, human and public services, that career pathway, it's almost entirely focused on education. And it's one of the two biggies, the other one being health sciences and technology. So our high school students are learning the things they need to learn to meet our needs in our society, which is awesome. But then we've also got to help on this retention side. I'm glad you brought up the retention piece. At the end of all my interviews, I always like to ask people, like, what's an issue you think more people should be talking about? And a lot of times they do bring up things like school support staff and needing for more paraprofessionals. But just the other day, I asked that same question to someone who, you know, works in higher education and works with folks that are training to become special education teachers, getting them out in the workforce. And the thing that they kept trying to tell me is, man, we've had so many students that have gone through these programs that have been fantastic students, that are fantastic educators, that have lasted three, five years as teachers before they've left the profession entirely. And so I know that's something that's, that you're working on as well. Yeah, yeah. So that I think that's our big thing to watch. Yeah. Um, again, I think in terms of, I think a year from now, we're not going to be in a different a place. Right. I wish I could say otherwise, but I, I hope... Um, we'll get to one of the other items on the list will affect this. Um, I hope come 2026, 2027, we start to see those retention numbers increasing. And again, like what's publicly reported on the report card, that's not even nuanced enough to really capture. We've got to be looking by profession type, by region to really understand uh, what's happening here and how to solve it. Yeah. Next one on the list we had is ESSER which for folks that don't know, again, I just joked about how much we love acronyms, elementary and secondary school emergency relief fund. It's all of the federal funding that specifically, you know, education got during the pandemic. There's been several rounds of it. And I believe, Jason, the last round of that, what they call ESSER 3, all of that money has to be like, we have to devote that by the end of, I think sometime at the end of this year, correct? That's correct. So that'll happen during this year with the, I mean, you know, really you've got the mismatch there between the federal budget cycle and, and what a state, right. you know, state budget cycle looks like. And, and school districts, of course, function on that July 1st to June 30th. Most, most places have essentially allocated those funds if, if they're not all spent, like they're in the process of being spent. 
Um, I just had someone ask me the other day, do you talk to anybody who, who still doesn't know how they're spending some of that? And the, the, occasionally there's still some, uh, some, some places out there, but by and large, yeah, we're nearing the end of that. And a lot of that money to your point has been spent on student mental health and wellness. You know, we're in a very different spot today with the level of awareness of what wellness looks like and what it looks like for students of different ages too. Uh, I think I think we have a ways to go, but I would say rank and file educators have developed a more nuanced understanding of that. I think there's also times where we need additional training and professional learning, and we also need some time to be able to kind of step back and reflect on what we've learned. And that's one of the hardest things to do as a teacher because you get that one institute day and then you're teaching again for the next seven straight weeks. And, you know, there's not a lot of time in the daily lives of teachers or principals to go, I want to reflect on that institute day and this student I have in front of me now, three weeks later and where they're at. It's hard to do do when there's five shows a day that you've got to do basically. Right. Yeah. And exactly what you mentioned, like that is a, that's a key thing that money was spent on with these federal relief funds. I mean, it's also been spent on things like infrastructure. I know that specifically in districts like the Rockford School District, replacing HVAC systems, getting air conditioning into schools that have never had air conditioning before has been a huge project, putting on roofs in schools. And, you know, again, it's a whole bunch of different things from that. Like you mentioned, professional development, it's been spent on on so many different things. Uh, I, I know that some people might have uh, the idea that this was spent like on more teachers, but I think that's something that people have talked about, that that probably wouldn't be very smart to specifically devote it to, particularly because when that funding ends, you know, what do you do with it? You can't really do that. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated, but point being, ESSER funds have been spent on a ton of different services across education. And now that that's ending, kind of what do you see as the impact of that? Obviously, it's going to be different depending on the district. I think people have used terms that seem really scary. They say things like we're approaching a funding cliff. But largely kind of how do you see if there is some kind of belt tightening or even just a shift in perspective of how we approach budgeting, how does ESSER affect that? And how does end all that funding kind of drying up at this point or being spent, like how does that impact schools going forward? This is not going to be the most optimistic answer you're going to hear from me. I, I do see it as a fiscal cliff. And I, I think there's lots of places that are going to, are going to have some painful things to deal with. And I think most of the painful things will come in one of two places, either salaries that were used for staff, for additional staff to provide additional supports. And those salaries are going away and salaries are 80% of a school district's budget. Right. Um, This is a, a human intensive business. Uh, And so so what what happens there? I, I you know I mean those positions go away and again there's a teacher shortage so the licensed ones are going to probably get jobs somewhere else. But if those services were really effective, what's what's going to happen when those services are gone? Now maybe if they were really really effective, the kids got what they needed and they're good now and they don't need those anymore. Um, but in other cases, they might continue to need those. Right. right. I think about even Another, a specific example like 
the Illinois Tutoring Initiative was a big sure. program across the state that was like came specifically from those federal relief dollars, was funded directly through that. The students that have gotten that have made improvements. It's really helped the students that have got that one-on-one -on -one intensive tutoring, but that's money is ending. And so I know that program, I've talked to those people and they're like, we want to keep doing this. How that's going to happen remains to be seen, but it's not something that in that case is like a mission accomplished. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. And so a couple things on that example. Um, yeah. So number one, hopefully the students who did benefit from the tutoring, from the Illinois Tutoring Initiative, got the intervention they needed and were really able to strengthen some foundational skills. Right. And they will able to be able to continue to grow really, really effectively without those additional supports in place. Sure. As educators, even with enrollments declining across the state, we still get new groups of students every single year, right? So there will be other students who would also have benefited from those and they will not have those. Now, maybe again, maybe we learned some things that we can incorporate into our regular classrooms. Now, that was not really the design of the Illinois Tutoring Initiative. So if that did happen, it was probably happenstance. It was probably piecemeal. And, in you know, again, from a policy perspective, not one where I can look and say to a parent, as I drive back, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to drive back and forth across the state and in schools all over. If I were to run into somebody in, in the neighborhood after leaving their school and they could say, oh, did we learn anything from the Illinois Tutoring Initiative? That would be a very hard question to answer because <laughs> right. it wasn't part of the design of the program. The other area where I worry about the fiscal cliff, and again, two, two mentions here. First, one bias. I, I was in charge of technology in school districts for 10 years. Um, starting literally moving from the principalship to the technology role the day the first iPhone was released. Um, Good so timing on your part. Significant, it was a very significant set of changes, though, right, during those 10 years. Um, and the second is, this is not a very large portion of school district budgets that I'm talking about. But school district budgets are so tight that it's a big enough chunk of money that now it's going to be a problem. And so that's a lot of these ESSER funds were used to move to one-to-one, -to -one, right? To yeah. buy Chromebooks, to buy iPads. And so my rule of thumb as a director of technology was I'm not buying stuff once if I know, unless I know how I'm buying it the second time. Right. Like I have to know that up front because these things have a refresh cycle. And again, when I started in that role in 2007 with a brilliant and experienced board of education, each time new computer labs were purchased, like the, the computers for it, I think they thought, great, we did that, we're done. When in fact, it's like, yep, no. And so obviously we all know that now because it's 2024 and people have gone through how many smartphones. At this how many point, iPhones right? have you been through since 2007? And, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. So, so there's a different level of understanding among normal people, among board members and parents, but paying for those next rounds of devices that kids and teachers have come to rely on and again, I'm not going to say device yes or no makes learning better, but I am going to say device does more easily allow us to put the student at the driver's seat of their learning if we're doing instruction right. Um, that's significant. And again, this fiscal cliff, those are the two areas that I'm worried about the end of ESSER funds for, for some districts. And again, especially our districts that are at 65, 70% of equity, or excuse me, of adequacy, I apologize, on our our evidence-based funding formula, 
uh, and that adequacy metric that we have in Illinois, there's not a lot of money lying around to say, it's okay, we can buy new Chromebooks for next year's third graders, or we can replace those two teacher salaries from our own existing funds. So those are the areas I worry about, and I worry about how they will more significantly impact some districts than others. I think it's such a fascinating thing to look back on now as this funding is ending and has all been spent about what the opportunities have been over the past couple of years, like you said, to invest in things like technology, to invest in mental health support, to invest in basic school infrastructure. Like school administrators have had a really interesting opportunity where through the (coughs) pandemic, they've had money that they have not really had before to do some, again, really, really important things. And so it's obviously going to be very important moving forward to see how that drying up, how that cliff then impacts us going forward. I do think it's an interesting thing to also assess what these last couple of years have been like and if that money was spent, you know, in the way that most made the most sense and had the best impact and, you know, didn't shock us moving forward to, as well. Yeah, I will, it will remain to be seen and it will be, and I actually, I guess the last thing I'll add is we won't have metrics to answer a lot of this <laughs> right. Yeah, to exactly. know what the impact, Yeah, because um, there will be some quasi ways we can figure out on the teacher side, but like, what was the, opportunity cost of finding funds to pay for the next round of Chromebooks outside of like case studies, that would be very hard to measure. Yeah. And so, um, so we're kind of going into this a a little bit with our hands over our eyes too. So we're going to watch this and see. Let's stick around and talk more about school finances and funding, because the other thing that we had on our list was you mentioned adequacy and the evidence-based funding formula that the state has had in Illinois for about seven years now, going up to about seven years or so, with the goal going in, I know, was to devote at least $350 million to this funding formula every single year. We had a pandemic that came up on us really, really quickly through that, that that made things a little bit challenging in those first couple years. I'm curious, I know that we had specific goals for evidence-based funding where are we at right now, Jason? Kind of a, what do you see as, as the state of that and, and how have we kind of moved towards what those initial goals were? Do you feel like we're in a place where we could still hit some of those goals that were, you know, larger or where do you see evidence-based funding at right now? Yeah. So first of all, it's made a huge difference. It has, yeah. it has made an impact. And so um, real credit to the, all the, all the members of the team who work through developing the idea of the evidence-based funding formula. It's beautiful in that for those listening who don't understand, the evidence-based funding is designed, it looks at a number of metrics around two things. One, what a good a good school needs to be well-funded. So uh, metrics that come from professional organizations. So like how many librarians or counselors social workers, should there be per number of students, for example, those are all built in to the evidence-based funding. I think there's over 30 different factors, right? Yep. It's very complex. It's not that hard though. You, you put this in and then you fill out the information for each school. And the second piece is what are, what is the 
what are the facts of that school? What are the demographics of the students who attend that school? And um, one of the challenges in Illinois has been trying to make those that were resource rich not lose in the process of giving to those who weren't. And so that's where the additional funding comes in. Um, so we define, we have a definition in Illinois for essentially every single school of how much money they need to be adequately funded based on what community they're in. So it adjusts based on cost of living in different parts of the state and based on who their students are. Now, adequate should mean you're at a hundred percent of that, but given that money doesn't grow on trees, the legislature said, so we want to get everybody to 90% of adequate, which I like to joke is still not adequate. But, okay, it's much better than where many of those schools were at now. So that goal is to get all these school districts to at least 90% of their individual district adequacy target. So how have we done? Yeah, we've increased the number of districts that are, that are in that 90% or higher range, but we still have enormous number of districts below it, including districts that would shock people, like large suburban districts that appear to be well-resourced. And you look and you go, oh, they're only, they're only at 85%. Now, you also have districts that are at 123%, including, because of how the formula works, some tiny rural, very rural districts. We go, oh, they're at 123%. Um, and so again, it's how that all comes together the bottom line is the best thing to do here is to continue and inject more and more money, $600, $800 million a year. Where's that money going to come from? You know, that that's right. That's the tricky issue. And, and um, that's where economic development plays a part. That's obviously where the better we do in schools, the better businesses can do in Illinois. We get a virtuous cycle instead of a vicious cycle, et cetera. I know that's, Samantha Smiley, who is an education reporter at Chalkbeat, who was on our state of education panel that we did last year, but she recently did a story about evidence-based funding and talked to, to Matt Seaton, who is the State Board of Education's chief financial officer, and was talking about how we're doing right now and kind of what funding looks like for the next year or two. And he said, as we think about our budget for the next several years, I think we're going to be thinking in terms of a conservative budget. Yeah, I uh, so I mentioned this morning yep. we we held a monthly meeting at 120 people from about 120 districts, literally from the Wisconsin border to Kentucky. And during the meeting, I had a private message sent to me um, about an ISB team member and said, "This person's incredible. They really need a partner." And literally, the only thing I could respond with was. Yep, and that would be very hard for ISBE to do at this point. Not because that person's boss doesn't know they need a partner, not because people don't value the work they're doing. Uh, I think what you just described from Matt Seaton is 100% what I see in working with different people across the agency. And they don't get a lot of credit from those of us that have worked in school districts. But now I have the insight to give them a ton of credit and say, they are doing a lot with what they have. And, um, you know, let's just say they, they don't spend money where it's not needed. I think the uh, two weeks ago today, I was in Springfield for a meeting at, at the ISB office. And I think the two chairs by the elevator had been there since before I was born. And uh, 
I, I'm very nearly approaching the half century mark here. So uh, there again, there's they don't take how they spend the taxpayers money lightly to try and stretch it as far as they can on either what they're required to do, like for the federal government or state law, or what's going to have the biggest impact on on helping teachers and principals in schools. I was at a school district a couple weeks ago and I saw a sign that was hung up in the hallway and uh, it was a, a notice on, on there and the notice said like as of uh, March of 2012 and I was just like how is how has this piece of paper been hanging up here for 14 years but <laughs> I, I got a good laugh out of that but the next one we had on our list is something that Maybe I'm naive, Jason, but I had no idea that people had as strong of feelings about until I really started to dive into it a couple years ago, and that is around literacy and reading. Uh, you put the uh, the Illinois Literacy Plan was released by the state pretty pretty recently now, I believe, and you know Illinois, like a lot of states, have started to rethink kind of the way that we teach reading. I've had teachers describe it to me as that without really getting super in the weeds about the way that the science of reading works versus balanced literacy and all of these different things, it's a rabbit hole we don't need to go down at this point. But the way that I had um, a reading teacher talk to me about it and explain it to me was that she feels she's been in education for over 30 years and she said, well, I feel like it's kind of a pendulum swing where 30 years ago, we really focused most of our attention on phonics, and then that pendulum kind of swung back over to, to working on other things like, you know, vocabulary knowledge and language structure and things like that. And now the pendulum seems to be swinging back towards a focus on phonics primarily. But I'm curious, literacy and learning, literacy and reading rather, why is that something you think is one of the biggest issues in education right now? Well, so it's it's one of the two kind of key instructional issues. Yeah. And they kind of divide um, along, and they should not. These should both be really early childhood through 12th grade beyond yeah. in age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate ways. But this one kind of tends towards the elementary side, and the next one we'll get to will tend towards the secondary side. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it conjures up a lot of feelings. Um, I, I had a superintendent who liked to joke about his mother, who was um, in her 90s at the time in a small town in central Illinois, that she would sometimes say, I know it's true, but I don't believe it. <laughs> and um, I think for me, that defines a lot of the conversation when we get to talking specifically about instruction in in literacy or math yeah um uh certainly i i remember uh maybe when i was student teaching almost 30 years ago hearing about this pendulum and uh yeah that pendulum's got to stop swinging at some point we as professionals have got to step up and say yeah nope there's research on this it's pretty clear and usually that same superintendent I mentioned, who was very aggressively progressive and innovative, but also he said, most good instruction at some level is really this very balanced approach. Right. And that doesn't, he's like, that, 
that doesn't capture people's imagination. But that's where the really good work is. And and all I can think about are those conversations as I watch these literacy plans go. And again, our, our fractured media environment certainly makes this much more challenging today than it's ever been. Um, I was at one of the ISBE literacy plan um, listening tour sessions and they did exactly that. They truly listened. They weren't there to sell you on the plan. They, they just went through and they said, now we're going to, we want to hear about this section. And then they sat and took notes. Now we want to hear about this section, but Oh, that was quite the tennis match of like the whiplash of people in the room going from one side to the other. And so now this is going to shift. Ultimately we'll get a final literacy plan. Um, I'm sure ISBE will do some type of structured professional development statewide. I don't know if that will be, there will be required at some level, if it'll be voluntary. That's the big thing that I think we'll have to watch this year is that finalization of the plan and the beginnings of professional development around that plan. Again, if someone wants to look at the school report card, they're not going to see what whatever they see on the report card is not because of the plan in 2024 or 2025. Yeah. Um, that's years down the road. And um but but this will be a pretty critical year. Uh, I would say this year and next year. Much of that will actually probably be in calendar year 2025, uh, but starting the the school year that will launch coming up later this year. Yeah, and I do think it's just a fascinating issue to dive into. I had some really great conversations with literacy professors and teach people that teach that stuff about how just these ideas that we have. I think that a lot of us take for granted reading. And that uh, one of the, I thought, the most interesting quotes that someone told me was, and it was someone from NIU that said, uh, reading isn't natural. No. We think about, you know, no, language as something that is more natural, that children sit, Correct. they hear their parents talk, they hear their teachers talk, things are able to develop that. But you can't just, the joke that I made, I think I actually wrote this into the article, was like, you can't just sit kids in a room full of you know Charles Dickens books and just expect them to start reading that's not how it works at all and so and also obviously you know reading is something that is super important to development and could tell us a lot about you know how well a student's going to be doing going forward to the rest of their education journey but it's a really fascinating issue to dive into I think that people would would find it really really interesting to to learn more about and learn about different instruction but also just learn about how Kids learn to read. It's interesting. Yeah, I think it also speaks to the importance of actually the work you do and of journalism and presenting issues in ways that are balanced and and include experts, are grounded in expertise, right? Um, and so, and that's partially why we're here uh, with this whole literacy uh, debate. I will I will leave it at that and say um, it will be it will continue to be interesting. Um, and, and we have to get this right. You are absolutely right. It is too critical that we do what's, what we know works and is right for kids. And so that is, I guess, the thing that uh, I can't watch this as sport, if you will, yeah. because it's just too important. Yeah, absolutely. A absolutely. And again, people, Jason, like you mentioned with me, we, we love a headline that is, well, dot, dot, dot. It's complicated, <laughs> but yeah, that is very needed with topics like this. Exactly right. <laughs> Correct. 
One of the final ones that we had on the list, which I know is something that's near and dear to your heart, is career and college readiness. Yeah. So this is the other big instructional one. And again, I said this one tends towards that secondary side. I, I mentioned earlier the college and career pathway endorsements. We had over a thousand uh, students last year, class of 2023, who earned an endorsement in one of the seven career pathways, meaning that they went through and had a series of experiences, including an internship in a, a real live workplace. Um, but it also represents that they've developed a set of competencies in that pathway and these essential skills. So it's really important. Um, obviously, college is very expensive. We know still that a bachelor's degree um, is, is a real ticket to opening up economic opportunity throughout one's life. But the more you can go into that understanding about different careers and what you are interested in, what you're not interested in, those are all wins so that we're not unnecessarily spending limited financial aid, for example, um, going down a road where it's like, ooh, I don't want to do that. You know, someone who, yeah. who gets who earns the bachelor's successfully, even in four years as an accountant, and then they become accountant. And 10 months later, they're like, what was I thinking? This is not the profession I was interested in. But there's a lot of other things you could have done with math. And so what our counseling looks like, our advising, what those work-based learning experiences look like, there is a lot of energy being spent, not only by high schools, but even by middle schools, the upper elementary grades to start giving kids more and more of these experiences. The other thing I'll mention here is to me, the real magic in this one is how it can shift what learning looks like during the school day from what so many adults experience. This move to more of what, what on our team we call authentic learning, where kids are tackling real problems and challenges, like real ones, not fake ones as simulations, that it will have a real impact on someone um, when they have results. And maybe they'll fail at it. That's okay. They'll be able to learn through that process. And that's their way of attacking the same curriculum that we've wanted them to learn, that we know is important, but in a way that is much more hands-on, that they will retain much longer. And I think that shift comes with this. And you see, when you do that, attendance goes up, discipline goes down, kids' connection with school and their teachers goes up. Uh, it's really magical. And actually, I would make the argument, I believe in that world, teacher retention goes up. Um, teachers are actually doing less work and they're more coaches on the side and they have much greater job satisfaction because they see the impact of their work having a bigger impact on students. So, yeah. This is a big one. It's a really big one, and there's a lot of different directions to go to. I know that, obviously, when we're talking about s several different things, too, right? Career and technical education. We're talking about those internships, work-based learning. We're talking about things like dual credit and dual enrollment, too, which is, again, really, I think, has to have, over the past especially 10 years or so, really really strengthened a lot of those relationships between K through 12 and, and post-secondary and also the community, too. So I would, that's the other thing I was going to add is the, the connections between community colleges and school districts yeah. have so significantly increased. And even in the la even even during the pandemic, because of this movement and because of dual credit and dual enrollment, but also just some other collaborations around programs, around grants locally. Um, now, and those are tricky relationships because they are really coming at things, you know, do you say potato and we say potato, 
And is that, I don't know that I did that right, but you, you get it. (laughs) And so there's a lot of work that has to happen for those relationships. And again, to the point of our funding conversations earlier, neither the community colleges nor the school districts are so well-funded that they have people they can just throw at this. I mean, community colleges are making choices increasingly recently to more and more often to have, um, liaisons with their school districts, really key roles, um, pretty high levels in the infrastructure. Um, but even, I mean, you've got 12, 15 school districts oftentimes, or even in some of our community college regions, uh, where you've only got three or four school districts, they're huge school districts. And so it's, um, it's, it's complicated. And so my point is no one is, uh, overstaffed for this kind of work, and uh, but it is bringing groups together, which is really cool, and we'll continue to support that work to help them grow into those relationships. One of the other things I think is really interesting on this same topic is that all of these opportunities for students, and we think about this as a, as a transitional thing between high school, work experience, community colleges, what have you, is that this also starts to kind of redefine the 12th grade year, redefine the senior year, which is something that you've talked to me a little bit about before. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about more about what you, what you mean by that, what that can look like? Well, the people who like to talk about redefining 12th grade, they really look at it as one of two things. It is, it is really an early college experience mm-hmm. for, for many kids or for kids who aren't ready for that early college experience, it is a chance to really be focused and shore up their experiences. So it's not this sorting of kids. It's trying to make sure that we get all kids to that minimum level of proficiency so that they can go. You know, one of the things, even for kids going directly into the workforce, we know that in a career, some post-secondary education is likely to be part of their career path even if that kid doesn't think that's true when they walk out of that high school after 12th grade. And so we want to make sure they're prepared for that level of work, um, whether it's three years later or five years later or surprising to them in August, right, after their their senior year. So um, so that's really what redefining the senior year is about. Yeah. I think that I think there's some more nuance to it. I sure. think the high school experience itself is really important, the co-curricular activities, Um, giving kids the chance. We are lucky in Illinois. Certainly we have some really small high schools who the size of the school has to do with what you can offer, but we also have lots of large schools in lots of places. We have these great area career centers around the state that give kids opportunities to get a deeper experience if their school can't offer welding or, or a CNA, a certified nursing assistant program. They can maybe go to the area career center to to get those experiences. And so making sure kids are able to do some of that age appropriate exploration mm-hmm. while they're still in high school too. And and I don't think anybody talking about the redefining 12th grade is saying it's not that. Right. It's just hard sometimes to fit it all in the day. So it's a I want to I don't want to over lean on that yeah. kind of definition sure. because almost I'm going back to the literacy plan conversation. It should really be a very balanced approach is I guess what I'm saying. Right. Um, and I think what our schools across Illinois are trying to do, and we've got legislation that's supporting them to do that by and large. So I think I would look at anybody anywhere and say, 
you got kids. I'd moved to Illinois. Uh, we're headed in the right direction for what education ought to look like. Um, and I, I won't be shy about saying that. Right. Like you said, it's it's a balanced thing, too, between putting being able to give people these experiences early on and put people on a track to do the things they want to do, but also have that freedom and flexibility to still allow kids to experiment, try new things, see what they like at a young age so they don't feel like they are, you know, I pick a track at, at 16 or whatever career path I want to go down and all of a sudden I'm in too deep by the time I'm 18 or something. So again, balance with all this. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the other last thing I want to mention on yep. the career and college readiness is mentioned earlier when we were talking about early childhood, this has been another major and consistent policy focus uh, for, for Governor Pritzker. Um, lots of attention paid both at the community college level and the school district level. Um, this past year, there was an increase in career and technical education funding for the first time in like forever. Um, and so uh, it, it, this has been a consistent, a consistent focus. And um, it's also been interesting to see the alignment there uh, between Illinois and the White House on this. I mean, obviously, uh, Jill Biden has, you know, brought an interest into the White House and in this kind of stuff with her work in the community colleges. And we've seen plenty of high level uh, visits, in, including Jill Biden, actually, when she was at Rolling Meadows High School and she's visited multiple community colleges. And, and that's all she was at Sauk Valley, I want to say, last she year. She was at so. Sauk yeah. Valley. Yep, exactly. And so all this work happening around career and college readiness, I think you see that in in those, I mean, those are like symbolic moments, but that is representative of this consistent work that's happening. And again, when we can talk about a place like Sauk Valley or Rolling Meadows and seeing kind of that range here across Northern Illinois, I, I think that's representative of what's going on statewide. And so that's exciting. Yeah. And I wanted to mention too, I know there's been some legislation, I believe that went into effect last year in 2023 and one of the co-sponsors one of the sponsors was uh, Maurice West from from Rockford about career and tech pathways and high schools offering endorsements so that's another thing that should be interesting to follow over the next couple of years as all of that starts to roll out and expand across high schools in the state too yeah yeah and, and again we've seen the the uptick on that yeah. from from 5 in 2020 to over 1000 in 2023 uh, and let's keep in mind that policy implementation has been done by school districts without any additional funding, no money for more counselors, work-based learning, transportation to work-based learning, um, and during a pandemic. Right. And you've still seen it go from five at one school district to uh, over a thousand at, I don't even remember how many school districts, but I know there are applications in this year from, um, I can tell you, approximately 150 school districts. So that gives you an idea of the scope of like that initiative making its way across. The state. You mentioned, Jason, the president. And one of the final things we had on here was the impact of the presidential election on Illinois. How how do you see this as part of the education conversation? Well, I, I hope I'm wrong. Um, but uh, national and international politics have increasingly made life challenging uh, at the school district level. They, we've seen more and more board meetings, local school board meetings with unpaid school board members who live in that community 
nonpartisan positions, not not saying they don't have partisan opinions, and they're certainly entitled to those as as Americans, right? Um, but become raucous affairs on on a more and more frequent basis. We've seen the literacy conversation be dominated by left versus right. Uh, we've seen non-conversations uh, become critical conversations in our in our school districts about things that maybe don't even apply uh, to work happening in school districts. And so unfortunately, I, I'm concerned about I'm concerned about people wanting to run for school boards. Um, then I'm concerned about who's wanting to run for school boards. Um, I'm concerned about the impact that has on superintendent hiring and retention. I'm concerned about the impact that has on principal hiring and retention. Uh, we know who the principal is, is one of the most significant factors in teacher job satisfaction. I can tell you the life of the principal is very directly impacted by who the superintendent is. So I'm not, I'm not interested in how much money gets passed from a federal budget. That's sure. a, a very small amount of our local school budgets. I'm more interested in the bully pulpit of the White House and the presidential election and uh, the tenor setting and, and how we um, seek to compromise, how we in school districts hopefully center our work on the needs of students and not on uh, adult concerns um, and and on, on being inclusive for all of our students. And obviously that's a bias I bring to the table that maybe not everybody listening will hear, but I will say if I want kids to learn more, I need them to belong as members of the school community. And so, um, again, that's an apolitical statement. That is like straight up educational research. And so um, so I, I worry about all those things with the presidential election. Again, I hope we can sit here next December or January and say, Jason, you were wrong. There was nothing to worry about. Um, that I would be thrilled to publicly admit uh, incorrectness on this one. I think we'll all be very happy if we get to do that in one year. So let, let's cross our fingers for that. Last one on the list. This one is extra exciting for me. You really know how to preach to the choir, Jason. That you wrote one of the one of the biggest stories in education in Illinois should be the Chicago Bears Arlington Park Stadium proposal. You got me hook, line, and sinker. Tell me about it. Well, so first of all, it's we well, first of all, the three school districts, the property that Arlington Park is on, it's gonna be very confusing to people. Uh <laughs> incorporates three school districts, one elementary and two high school districts, because literally the property is split between high school district 211 on the west and 214 on the on the east. Well, the three school districts came together very early in all of this and said, uh, we, we support this. We would love to welcome the Bears as a new neighbor and a whole development, but you can't like lock our funding because you're going to build homes and there's going to be kids and we don't have enough space in schools over here as it is. And what are we going to do about this? And so um, this is not just about, so yes, the bears is the punchline to get people's attention. And it is a big story. It is a potentially an enormous development. There's maybe legislation in Springfield. There was stuff proposed last spring in the general assembly. Nothing was passed. Um, even since I put it on the document for you and I, Peter, to discuss, we now have the white Sox talking about a new stadium um, and, and on the south side of the city. And so, um, and it's not just, it's not just sports stadiums either, to be clear. This is also any kind of um, 
tax increment, increment finance district or any kind of other subsidies to lure um, Meta to have a, a data center in, um, in DeKalb or Microsoft to have one in Hoffman Estates, for example. Um, and so we just, the, the topic of what are the impacts on schools and how do we support economic growth and development? How do we support environmental sustainability along with that? And how do we not have schools come out on the short end of all of these things? Um, I, think, I think Illinois may be uniquely positioned as a state for that conversation to continue to be central to, to the conversations that take place in Springfield. Um, there's enough people in the General Assembly who, who worry about schools. There's a governor who has, I mean, the, the quote I read about the White Sox Stadium was, we could talk about infrastructure, but I don't know that we should be talking about public dollars for private enterprises, and which is exactly what, what he said about the mayors. And, you know, of course, infrastructure, maybe public dollars for private enterprises too. I'll let listeners decide what they think about, about a quote like that. Um, but what we have to do here is really be centering some of the conversation and especially journalists like yourself being able to say, what is the impact on schools here? This is really exciting. What is the impact on schools? And, um, and so I think that's kind of a big question. And I think seeing three school districts really aggressively partner and and stand up to the beginning of the NFL, right? I mean, the Chicago Bears, um, I, I think it's it's not insignificant. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, to a smaller degree, obviously, but in some ways, but it, it kind of reminds me of the inverse of situation a couple years ago where the Byron School District was very, very concerned about what could happen to their funding and that, their tax base if the Byron nuclear plant there <laughs> was set to close. And that community rallied together to try to, and you know, really raise awareness of this is how it would affect us and our kids here, kind of the inverse of that situation. So, so you're exactly right. And we do know last year in the General Assembly, there was nuclear energy legislation passed yeah. that some of the origins for that were in what took place in Byron. That's a great call out. Um, so the the tax increment finance as an instrument of public development or public support of private development is meant to get at that same thing. So TIF supporters would say that, well, 30 years from now, a school district will reap all these benefits of the TIF district. Now, I have worked in, in one particular district that I worked in for 19 years in my career, um, where two of those TIF districts all of a sudden, in the last five or six years, there is new housing, um, new commerce, there's retail, there's restaurants, there's a movie theater. Um, it, but it took literally 28, 29 years to get to that. But wait, Jason, that's longer than a TIF district. Yeah, they re-upped the TIF. And so, you know, I think, I, I think it's a really interesting area. Uh, full disclosure, I'm actually teaching school law for chief school business officials starting tonight as we record this. <laughs> and uh, we are literally, before we even start class, we are starting with the Bears Arlington Park situation. Uh, they are going to all work for a a, a quasi uh, consulting firm to say, what would they do? What would they advise the school districts? 
Um, it's a big topic and there's a lot of research that's been done on the impact of these kind of financial incentives, both good and bad, short-term and long-term on school districts. But it's something we have to keep looking at in Illinois. Um, and again, I think we have, I think we're in a good situation to do that. I feel very optimistic about that based on some of our professional leaders on the education side, based on some politicians. And I'm not, again, I'm going to come in here at the end. And if someone says, well, what should we do, Jason? Um, I think there has to be a balanced approach here. I think there there may need to be incentives at time to support private business, but we we have to protect our schools. Otherwise, I do think we're cutting off our nose um, and we're going to regret it someday when we look at our face. And so that's kind of my thought about that. All right, Jason. Well, that was all that I had. We hit everything. And so I hope that people are able to learn a little bit from that. And I know for me, I always appreciate getting to hear your insight about all this. So thank you again for taking the time, fighting through this cough of yours. Hopefully I didn't injure you even more for your voice for that class coming up tonight. But I can't thank you enough for, for making the time, Jason. Always appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Keep up the great work. Again, that was the top education issues of 2024 with Jason Klein, Senior Director of Learning Partnerships at Northern Illinois University. As always, thank you so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. And you can feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, or share it. If you like what we do, it really is the best way to get even more perspectives on the show. You can also subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything going on with the show. You can do that at wnij.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs, who provide the amazing music you hear each and every episode of this show. I've been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we'll be back very soon with another episode of Teacher's Lounge. See ya.